Welcome to Something Wicked, where each episode we discuss topics on true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. On this episode, we're continuing our topic on holy daddy issues in the form of possession, and really touching on the pea soup aspect through well-documented accounts of some of the freakiest exorcisms released for public consumption. Because, you know, you need that brimstone fire in your tummy. Nim, nim, nim. So sit back, relax, and enjoy! enjoy. Welcome to part two. Welcome, welcome. Now that we've gone over the whole spectrum, let's get back to the spoopy shit, shall we? So, the exorcism rite, as in the Catholic book we see today, was created in 1614 and didn't get a revision until 1999. Oh my god, what a long fucking time. Hell of a gap to update shit, in my opinion, but I guess... That's, that's over 300 years. You do you, boo. Like, <laughs> it's not even... Just what the fuck. Its creation was solely for the purpose to stop vigilante exorcists to just depossess people that even had the slightest sign in their eyes of a demon in them. This mostly happened during eras like the bubonic plague. Priests would see people covered in boils and having spasms and vomiting and be like, you got a bad case of Satan. <laughs> like, that boobos looks pretty demonic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that spirits are inherently evil is itself a Judeo-Christian concept. Many religions and belief systems accept possessions by both beneficent and malevolent entities for short periods of time as a common and not alarming aspects of spiritual life. Spiritualism, back when it boomed in the late 1800s to early 1900s, proclaimed that death was an illusion and any spirit could possess humans. New Agers adopt channeling, letting spirits of the dead take over for a bit for the purpose of communication through mediums. Hundreds of books and symphonies have been allegedly written or composed by spirits. The word exorcism itself derives from the Greek word for oath, exousia, which ties into the description of James R. Lewis, a religious study scholar who wrote the book titled Satanism Today, an encyclopedia of religion, folklore, and popular culture. He says, quote, to exercise thus means something along the lines of placing the possessing spirit under oath, invoking a higher authority to compel the spirit rather than actually casting it out, end quote. So with this kind of knowledge and power, priests over the years have taken up arms against what they see as the forces of evil and try to help people that become unwilling hosts. Mind you, only a select few priests are actually indoctrinated into the sanctioned ranks of Catholic Church to become an exorcist. The other self-proclaimed ones are still in the hundreds all over the world. There are literally people out there that have said, quote, I've performed exorcism, so that makes me an exorcist. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, come up with a different title, yeah. I guess, because that is taken by the church, the whole exorcist thing. And I mean, it does simplify what you do. But at the same time, if you're not a sanctioned exorcist, you shouldn't be taking that title. Honestly, yeah. it's like a, it's a closed practice, honestly. Yeah, and I was gonna say, like, that's not how it just frickin' works. You can't just label yourself an exorcist because they're trying to use the mask of the fact that they're Catholics yeah. to say that they're just exercising demons and they're just allowed to. 
Like, so I can understand. Yeah, I can understand maybe some of them don't exactly use orthodox methods, but ergo can result in very dangerous cases causing injury or death to a victim. Yeah. Like in 2003, an eight year old autistic boy named Terrence Cottrell in Wisconsin was killed during an exorcism due to mechanical asphyxia of a chest compression, meaning that the priest sat on this little boy's chest until he suffocated. Oh, man. Yeah, all this because his parents and the members of their church were convinced that it was demons that caused his disability. Yeah, and this was, again, in 2003. That's so sad. Yeah. And that's a time where we have the sorts of science that would tell us exactly what it is. Like, why why would that be your answer? It's not a real answer. Yeah, and it's like, I work, because I, my my day job, essentially, is I work with kids on the spectrum. Yeah. And that, that breaks my heart to hear shit like that. Yeah. Because I've seen these kids, like, they, they're, they're, they vary from different things. They either go, like, you know, nonverbal on the more severe end to high functioning and everything in between. And it's like, all I can imagine, it doesn't just, it doesn't specify like where on the spectrum he was. So it's like, this boy could have not been able to communicate properly, or maybe he was having an episode or something like that. And the parents were just like, nope, it's demons. It's like, what the fuck? No, that's brutal. Yeah. Uh, So another one in 2010, a 15 year old boy named Christy Bamu, who was originally from the Congo, um, this happened on Christmas Day in England, was killed by his sister and her friend. His uncle had accused him of witchcraft and believed that he casted spells on another child in the family. So the two girls took it upon themselves to interrogate him in a deliverance ceremony and for three days tortured him with knives, sticks, metal bars, and a hammer and chisel until he admitted to being a sorcerer and he begged to die. Then they drowned him in the bathtub. What the actual fuck? Yeah. That wasn't that long ago. That's 12 years. Yeah, 12 years ago. Oh, every Mm -hmm. moment I think that we've gotten so far away from this shit. No, there's still places where this shit's going on. Mm -hmm. Those are a couple of examples of the toxic side of the right, whereas a couple other short ones reported on possession itself over the centuries included a man named George Lukens in 1778, who was an English teacher who spoke in strange voices, made inhuman noises, and sang hymns backwards, which no fucking thank you! That sounds terrifying! (laughs) That does sound terrifying, man. If you can sing a song like that, like a a religious hymn backwards... Mm -mm. No, I'm good. I'm fucking good. Like, but yeah, seven priests were called to expel him. You're either possessed (laughs) or just really talented. Either way, it's still terrible. It's still creepy as shit. In 1842, a 28-year-old woman named uh, Gottlieben Dittus claimed her house was haunted and began slipping in and out of trances. I'm sorry, did you say Gottlieben? Yeah, Gottlieben. What a really neat name. Yeah. Okay, sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. No, I agree with you, though. But only one priest did uh, the exorcism on her that shit really hit the fan. During these sessions that took two years, Dittus became violent and had to be restrained. She would also vomit glass, nails, and blood. Oh my god, now that's that's a true goddamn possession. Yeah, she didn't ingest these things beforehand. She just started puking up fucking glass and nails. Oh, fuck. Yeah, the blood, obviously, because... Glass and nails. Yeah, but the other things, it's like, um... Where did those even come from? (laughs) Yeah, then after the two years... Do you have ficus? It sounds like ficus. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, fuck, sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, so God damn it. It took two years to exercise this woman. Then miraculously, like you were saying earlier with the whole, like, I'm good. She just informed everyone that demons were gone and that Jesus was the victor. And that was that. No, she made a pact with those demons to get the fuck out of the situation. <laughs> That's what she did. Yeah, like, what the hell, though? I'm like, nope, we're done with this. This has been two years of my life wasted. You ain't going away. We're just going to be friends now, I, I guess. I couldn't. I'm, I'm the proverbial, like, if you've ever seen that meme where it's like a demon invasion your body it's like oh mortal i have taken over what the fuck is this feeling it's anxiety <laughs> why does why, my back hurt why does everything hurt i don't like it here <laughs> would you like a blanket what you get used to it <laughs> no <laughs> okay last last little clip of it in 1906 a 16 year old girl in south africa named clara seal was supposedly hurt making a pact with the devil and soon after began behaving erratically she would tear at her clothes growl speak in tongues and demonstrate superhuman strength during the exorcisms performed on her her skin would burn when touched by holy water this is what i was saying yeah like this is this is That's proof legit. of like aversion to holy objects if somebody throws holy water on the bitch and her skin is sizzling then i have some belief behind that yeah yeah she also levitated before 170 witnesses but after what was described Dispute as that bitches yeah 170 so, but uh, at the end of it like apparently this noxious smell was observed leaving her body then she was deemed free of evil so like after whatever exorcism they performed like this fucking stink cloud just came out of her and they're like you're good but she farted for like half a day and now she's free of demons well demons can't enter through any orifice I mean, <laughs> so that's some intense flatulence but you do you boo yeah. <laughs> what one of the few Vatican-trained exorcists, Father Lampert, talked about his experiences being trained for three months in the Vatican's exorcist classes and the cases he's encountered since then. During his time in Rome, he had witnessed 40 exorcisms. He exorcised a woman who had been possessed after a childhood trauma, which she had been raped by her father. When he went to exorcise her, she growled and leapt at him like a dog, and which made him jump back as he got freaked out. Then he put his hand on her head and prayed for her. Um, when that happened, a voice came out of the woman saying, you can't get rid of us. We've been here too long and you're not strong enough. Oh. Yeah, they were like pissed. They are like, get the fuck up off me. <laughs> like, no. You're out of your depth, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> another session on another woman, the chair she sat in flew back and the woman flew forward and shrieked and screamed. Like, that's... I mean, that's I'd be freaked out too if my chair went the opposite way that I went. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. Like, that's what he was describing. It was more of, like, involuntarily, the chair itself just flew backwards, and she literally flew in the air forwards down the aisle, because he performs these exorcisms in his church. Oh. Yeah, so I, I don't know if it's a case of that she just, like, had a spasm and kicked it backwards, or if she, bitch legit, just, like, yeeted herself down the damn uh, thing. But it's just, I, I don't know, that one's kind of iffy for me. Yeah. But, um, so... This man receives 1,800 calls, emails, and letters every year from people all over the world who believe they are possessed. More than half of the calls come from people who aren't even Catholic or religious at all. 
Father Lampert says that exorcists are trained to be skeptics. Every other possible explanation needs to be exhausted before they come to the conclusion of possession. Which, smart. Yeah, that's a good way to go about it, honestly, because a lot of people would take advantage of that. Like, you know, all those people who claim demons and then try and murder someone. Yeah. There's that. So, um... Priests are now instructed since that, uh, since the revision of the right, to give a brief psychological and addiction profile to determine whether the victim needs medical or spiritual help. They follow a three-step procedure, which step one, the person is to go through the psychiatric evaluation, step two, addiction issues, and step three, the questions. They are asked if they had any experience or history of engaging in the occult, such as witchcraft, black magic, magicians, fortune tellers, crystals, wizards, or game boards. Game boards? Yep. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I could see, like, the Ouija board is technically a game board. A game, quote-unquote. It was it's, originally created as a game. It's still marketed as a game. Yeah. But By still, Hasbro. I'm just imagining, like, <laughs> you stole the boardwalk from me and Monopoly. You're fucking full of demons. Like, what? But we were playing Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what about the game of life? <laughs> uh, continuing on the questionnaire. Shoots and ladders? <laughs> God damn it, oh my God. You're gonna kill me. <laughs> 90% of this podcast is just gonna be laughter. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. They're also asked, have they ever tried to communicate with spirits, demons, or the devil itself? Do they truly want to be free of evil influences they believe are presently affecting them, and are they willing to do what must be done? I'm sorry, but I don't think I'd be able to answer honestly for half of those questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I, if I tell you what you're asking me, you won't help me. Yeah. That's fine. No. <laughs> Father Lamper has r- reported seeing people's eyes roll in the back of their heads, or their eyes turn completely black, like nothing's there but total darkness, foaming at the mouth, etc., because of these occurrences, the Catholic Church does not allow filming of the exorcisms to protect the identity of those afflicted, but others not sanctioned by the church have been. Which is like, it always makes me wonder when you see like leaked videos on YouTube and shit. It's like, I, I know like 99% of them are fake, obviously, but it's just, it makes me think of like the non sanctioned. Yeah, I wonder people. about the like Ed and Lorraine Warren tapes and whatnot. I mean, not a lot of those were released until much later on. Yeah. But, like, there's a lot of recorded evidence there. Yeah. No, I want to get into them eventually. <laughs> but I know they weren't, like, actually sanctioned by the church, but they were, like, unofficial affiliates sort of deal. Yeah. My, my other my other interest, honestly, is, like, I want to see, like, real rural exorcisms. Yeah. Like, I've always wanted to see one of those. And, but the thing is, is if they don't film shit, then we never will, which yeah. kind of sucks. <laughs> um, a non-sanctioned exorcist named Father Michael Mag- uh, Maginot has conducted 15 exorcisms, and his most famous one being done on a mother and her three children in Gary, Indiana, in the house known by the media as the portal to hell, Father Maginot witnessed one of the scariest cases covered by the news. The house has since been demolished, but what went on there haunts the family that suffered through it like to this day what started as persistent flies on the porch transpired into strange noises at night and ultimately the mother's 12 year old daughter levitating above her bed unconscious other things that happened were like the presence picked up a lamp from the mother's bedroom and just yeeted it into the living room just fuck that lamp (laughs) 
fuck this <laughs> lamp in particular. Yeah. Father Maginot was also uh, was called to the house to speak to the mom, where he witnessed what he considered several signs of demonic possession, including unexplainable footprints that would spontaneously appear in circles only around the mother, like wet footprints that didn't trail from anywhere else in the house. Ew. He laid his cu- uh, his crucifix on the mother's forehead, and she just began convulsing. Uh, then the seven-year-old son started making growling sounds while his eyes rolled into the back of his head. His older brother walked up the wall backwards, flipping over his grandmother. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, at that time, mind you, DCF and medical personnel from the hospital had witnessed this and actually wrote up documented reports of this happening as fact that they witnessed it. Yeah, I mean, if you see a kid walk backwards up the wall, that's defying gravity and physics and all the shit. Like, it's hard to deny at that point. Yeah, I'd be like, I fucking quit. Like, like that, that 170 <laughs> witness bullshit, like, you're not disputing this. Yeah, no. The police were called after all this, and the grandmother walked them around the house and described the series of violent occurrences, including the children being thrown like ragdolls by unseen forces. Like, this house was fucking nuts. Oh, God. Because I've seen I've seen full stories on it, and it's like it's it's scary what this family went through. I'm so sorry for them. That's yeah. Awful. According to the Catholic Church, along with all the signs of dangers of possessions, there are a handful of specific demons that are considered to be the most feared to be able to possess you. We are going to cover the top eleven from least to most frightening. So buckle up, ladies and gents. Now it's time for Hellfire Hotties. Woohoo! Coming up first, number 11, Ben Tamalian. This demon appears in Jewish mythology before the rise of the Catholic Church, and only appeared once in a possession. A powerful emperor in ancient times had ruled his kingdom with an iron fist, and passed harsh laws against the Jewish people. Then one day, his daughter began behaving oddly, and it was clear that she was possessed. She began chanting the name of a famous rabbi in the kingdom, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and the emperor called on this rabbi to come and see his daughter. Rabbi went into the princess's chambers and shouted, Ben Tamalian, go! And the demon just peaced out of her. The emperor was so grateful that he repealed the anti-Jewish laws. Like, this demon was politely asked to leave, and he was like, cool, okay, I can see I'm not wanted. Aw, he's just lonely. It's always been a complaint that you can never just find a polite down-to-earth guy. Well, maybe if we switched it to up the earth selection, things would work out better. Next up is number 10. Belphegor, a powerful demon, one of the seven princes of hell, and the representation of the sin of sloth. He specializes in temptation and more than likely will make someone just be lazy and shirk their work. He's easy to summon because his sacrificial offering is excrement. Ew. 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 <laughs> it's poop? Yeah. I figured at that point it'd be like cannabis or something. It sounds like a stoner. <laughs> He appears and plays novels as a trickster demon, or works through those get-rich-quick scheme people to get to you. He's harder to get rid of because of his status, but people may not even know he's possessing them. Needing personal space is must to any healthy relationship, and someone who you barely notice makes it all the more relaxing. At number 9, we have Andres. Known to strike fear, this winged demon has the head of an owl and the body of a human. He rides around on a fearsome wolf and hard to shake when he possesses you. He commands 30 infernal demons and is notorious 
notorious for striking out and killing the conjurer who summoned him if they weren't suitably protected. He is a grand marquis of hell, a fearsome opponent, and driving him out is a dangerous task. His main concern once possessing someone is mainly to sow discord. So not much more than an annoying voice in your head giving you violent advice. Sounds like someone would have your back when Be Becky at the office is being a real see you next Tuesday. <laughs> Next, at number 8, Aquiel, a minor demon assigned to preside over Sundays. His goal is to desecrate the Christian Sabbath by any means necessary. So, anything involving work, vandalism, drinking, etc. And he basically naps the other six days. So, if you're looking for that oh-so-coveted date nap, Aquiel is perfect to snuggle up and give you that much-needed vacay. At number 7, we have Azazel, a fallen angel whose job was to execute the goat the villagers would pour their sins into, creating the literal scapegoat. Hence the title. He exposes Christians to forbidden knowledge, but he doesn't harm or threaten his host. He is considered powerful and hard to exercise, but not that big of a deal. I mean, sounds like a being that has a job as a humanitarian that can shoulder all of your problems. Who wouldn't want that? And ladies, if you've enjoyed our lineup of eligible malicious parasites, you'll be excited for the next hunk of hellfire. Number six, Asmodeus. <laughs> A prince of demons representing the sin lust. He causes blackouts and goes on benders involving drugs, sex, booze, the whole nine. He is notorious for killing the spouses of women he desires. So ladies, if your husband has gotten on your last nerve, step right up and summon this mediator of marital spats. But don't let your hubby get too close to you with water, birds, or fish guts because Asmodeus hates them and will leave you high and dry by piecing the fuck back to hell. <laughs> Some very specific things there to get rid of that bitch. <laughs> we're closing in on our top five, and we're kicking it off with Surgat. He's a minor demon that's been mentioned in the Book of Magic and Lore, created by Pope Hernaris. This notorious pope liked to test fate and summon demons himself. Also, he could learn the tricks of banishing them back to hell. He believed that he would be called to fight on fight Satan himself and was practicing it by taking it out on his minions, but Surgat was not having that. He is the only demon in the book whose banishing ritual is not discussed. That's because he is the only demon to stump the Pope. <gasps> Sounds like he's got the brains and the brawn because the Pope was unable to banish him. He earned the nickname, He Who Opens All Locks. Makes you wonder what size key he's got, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> We have Renove, a high-ranking Marquis of Hell. This powerful demon commands 28 legions of demons and fancies himself a teacher. Everyone possessed by him learns languages, rhetoric, and the skill of persuasion. He wants to create more evangelists for Hell and views humans as convenient tools rather than things to be tortured. For young people, it can be enriching. I know I wouldn't mind getting taught some fancy linguistics. But for old people, out of this lovely dating game, it could be fatal. His job is to take old souls, so if he possesses an elderly person or an animal, they're likely to die soon after. Also, people around the possessed person are likely to die if they're vulnerable. So not only is this being patient and knowledgeable, he can help keep the toxic people out of your life while playing a game of bridge with Grandpa in the Great Beyond. Aww. <laughs> Next up at number three, Agaris. 
you will tickle your sense of humor by either appearing as an old man riding a crocodile, or fill your tummy with butterflies by appearing as an incredibly beautiful young woman. This Duke of Hell is good at getting people to let him in, breaking down all those walls, and just giving you that long-needed huge bear hug. He teaches languages and has interests in the most profane and obscene words around, so don't be afraid to shelve away that PC language bullshit we've all been shoved into learning when you're in his presence. He has multiple powers, including the ability to cause earthquakes and commands 31 legions of demons. Ooh, so three more than Renope. Sounds like competition. He also has the power to force runaways or anyone that's left home to return to their origin. So you never have to worry about where your kids are if they've missed curfew because this gentle giant will compel them to be on your front porch lickety-split against their will. <laughs> At number two, we have Beelzebub. If you're into entomology, this is perfect partner for you. Known as the Lord of Flies, he is a high-ranking prince of hell. Some say he represents pride, others say gluttony, and others claim he is the prince of false gods, so he'll feed you and give you a gold star for your accomplishments. How sweet. Christian's Lord. <laughs> sweetie, sweetie, could you, um, <clears throat> could you not with the flies, please? Mm. Christian lore says that he fell alongside Lucifer, making him one of the first demons, while other traditions place him as the Lord of Hell itself. But most believe Beals is just below him in the hierarchy. Past accounts of possessions, such as the mass possession of a nunnery in the 1600s, so he's not only hard to drive out, but his possession can spread. I can spell a menage a trois! With this one, his victims show great hostility and can become violent, making him one of the hardest demons to banish. Who doesn't love a man who could stand his ground? The only downfall in his possessions are associated with mysterious manifestations of insects, so as long as you don't mind a few pestering fruit flies, Beelzebub just might be in the cards for you. Yeah, fruit flies. <laughs> More like cockroaches <laughs> lots of flies. I mean, Lord of the Flies. <laughs> and last but not least, at number one, the King of Hell, the original fallen angel, Lucifer, the late Father Gabriel. The founder of the International Associated of Exorcists claimed to have confronted Lucifer himself in a 1997 exorcism, but there was no way to prove if it was real because he barely ever possesses people. There's very little information on how to banish him because how little time he's appeared, and a few successful exorcisms of him were long and hard. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the only reason for him to meddle in human affairs is to try and kick off the end of days. So not only is he a king, he shows up at the most important time and has sky-high ambition. Beat that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this concludes our lineup of eligible bachelors. We'll be right back after a quick commercial break. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. 
We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please go to glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! thought it would be fun to add a little humor to that section while still giving out some info on the demons that priests seem to have to deal with when they come across these obscure and horrifying cases. And speaking of, there's a severe thunderstorm going on outside, so this makes it even more frickin' freaky. <laughs> what a perfect time for this. I know, right? That's great. Oh my god. So, the next two we're covering are two of the most famous cases. If you've ever seen the movies The Exorcist or The Exorcism of Emily Rose, you are in for a treat. Now, we're not going to go into the full-on detail of every aspect of these cases because each one alone could take up a whole ass episode. But since this episode is about possessions, I felt it only right to include a decent chunk from both. The 2005 movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose really was based on a true story, and in fact, not that far off from what actually happened. Back in the 70s came one of the longest and most horrific stories of the demonic possession that could ever be documented. Annalise Michelle grew up a devout Catholic and attended Mass bi-weekly. Appearing, uh, appearing to be a normal teenage girl, at 16, she suffered a severe convulsion that struck her out of the blue. She was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. A few years later, she suffered another seizure while staying at a psychiatric hospital and was prescribed anticonvulsant drugs for the first time. The drugs did nothing to alleviate the problem, and she would soon just uh, describe to start to see devil faces everywhere she looked during the day. She was then prescribed another drug, uh, Aulept, which was used in the treatment of psychosis and schizophrenia and was meant to curb these delusions. She suffered from deep depression and began hallucinating while she prayed, as well as voices telling her that she was doomed and would rot in hell. Despite more treatment at a psychiatric hospital over the course of five years, her health did not improve and her depression deepened. Then suddenly, she started developing an intolerance of sacred objects and places. She refused to walk past crucifixes or drink from a holy Christian spring. When taken uh, to one of the holy shrines that had a spring in it, she said that she could not stand to be there because the ground was burning her feet. She was physically unable to approach the shrine itself, and when she looked around at the people praying at the shrine, she described seeing them gnashing their teeth as if in anger or agony. Wow. Yeah. So, like, she legit, she, anytime she saw the faces of these people, like, they twisted into these horrible, demonic, like, tortured faces for Ugh. her. Yeah. Soon after that, she claimed to no longer be able to look at pictures of saints, for they sparkled so brilliantly they blinded and hurt her. The family appealed to the church multiple times for an exorcism, but the church declined, encouraging the family to continue psychiatric treatment. Annalise worsened during this period, becoming physically weak and displaying heightened aggression. She would also regularly hurt herself, eat insects, and drink her own urine. Ugh. Yeah. 
1973, she was prescribed more antipsychotic drugs and mood stabilizers, but they did nothing to improve her health yet again. In 1975, the church granted permission for priest Arnold Renz to perform the exorcism, but only under the strictest secrecy. On September 24th, Arnold performed the first session and would go on to ultimately perform 70 exorcisms on her over the next 10 months. Jesus, fuck. Yeah, this, this shit was nuts. Um, Annalise claimed that multiple demons inhabited her body, including Judas Iscariot, Nero, Hitler, <laughs> Cain, Lucifer, and others. So apparently Hitler's become a demon down in hell. I mean, honestly, is that so surprising? No, but you'd think it's like your grants. See, I don't know how it works down there. I don't know if it's like as soon as you go down there, like certain people are granted the rank of becoming a demon or they're just tortured for all eternity. I don't think Hitler should earn that privilege. I think he should just be tortured, but you know, that's my opinion. I mean, that's also a fair assessment. Yeah. (laughs) Um, She tried to weaken the evil spirit's hold through self-flagellation, often beating herself so hard that she had to be helped when standing. Oh, man. Yeah, a lot of of Christians did that, like, a while ago. I don't don't know if it's something that still happens today, but that's kind of... I mean, I'm sure there are still extremist sections that do that. Yeah. So, on July 1st, 1976, after 10 months of failed exorcisms... Annalise died. She weighed only 68 pounds, and an autopsy confirmed that she had died from malnutrition and dehydration. The priests involved were put on trial for manslaughter, and during the course of the trial, 47 tapes recorded for the exorcisms were played for the jury. Oh, man. Yeah. In the tapes, Annalise is heard to be vomiting, growling, and snarling like an animal, and at times what sounds like two distinct voices can be heard arguing with each other, but coming out of her mouth alone. Whoa. Yeah. Clips of these tapes can be heard on YouTube, and let me tell you, they friggin' made my skin crawl. Yeah, that's... Like, it's not... It's not fun to hear. Like, it, it's scurry. I mean, the fact that the jury had to sit through all of those tapes. Ugh, I would be a changed person after that. Same. <laughs> Real fucked up. The priest ended up getting sentenced to six months in jail, which was later suspended, and three years of probation. After the trial, Annalise's parents asked for permission for her body to be exhumed so they could bury her in a proper coffin with a proper ceremony. But that was not the only reason her parents wanted the body exhumed. A nun had come forward claiming to have a vision that Annalise's body had not decomposed after all this time of being in the ground and thus would prove that she was in fact possessed by a demon. When the body was was exhumed, however, medical examiners looked over her remains and stated that the decomposition of the body had proceeded as normal. So, and Annalise's grave has since then remained a holy site, uh, a pilgrimage for devout believers to travel to and pay their respects. Huh. Like, still to this day. I mean, that's nice that in death people, like, acknowledge her and what she went through and that's part of... Yeah, she's actually viewed as holy because there's a part, like, I, I didn't mention in here that I will now, is, um, at one point of her possession she was supposedly visited by uh mary and she was told by mary that she would continue to be possessed as an example to prove to the world that demons were real oh so like nothing the priests could have done would there have... was no way he could have saved her yeah none because mary just decided to be like you know what the world needs to see the truth and you're gonna be the example 
ouch, that sucks for someone that was just, like, she had her whole life ahead of her. Mm-hmm. She had a lot of stuff in the works, too. And she was just, 23 when she died. Yeah, and this just ripped her apart. Yeah. That's insanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now on to the case that inspired the original 1973 cult classic that continues to terrify audiences even to this day, The Exorcist. In 1940, a 14-year-old anonymous boy who the media has named Roland Doe was grieving through the death of one of his favorite aunts. The aunt herself was a spiritualist and before her death had taught Roland the art of divination specifically through a Ouija board. Oh no. (laughs) So naturally, a distraught Roland tried to contact his aunt through the board. He, however, contacted something else that would fuck up his whole world. After the contact with this demonic entity, the strange things that started happening around the house were astronomical. The family would hear sounds of marching feet, objects were levitated or flung across the room, furniture was violently pushed over, and religious iconography shook from their hooks on the walls. The demon even followed Roland to school, where witnesses claimed that his desk was pushed across the floor. So... And he just like, oh, like, that's ballsy. Yeah, classmates and teachers uh, were like, school. yeah. Mm-hmm. I will send to church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll be the best place. Yeah. Roland was taken to doctors and psychologists, though none could pinpoint anything specifically wrong with him and had no explanation for the supernatural occurrences. Roland's parents went to their Lutheran, uh, Lutheran pastor, who invited Roland to stay at his home for the night to observe him. During the night, The pastor claimed to have heard scratching and clawing sounds coming from the walls and Roland's bed, and even saw a heavy armchair get knocked over completely on its own. The next morning, the pastor advised the parents to contact the Catholic priest immediately. He was just like, hell no, I'm not dealing with this shit. Get this kid out of my house. That's fair. That's entirely fair. Edward Hughes conducted the first exorcism on Roland at Georgetown University Hospital, which ended in disaster. In the middle of Hughes' prayers, the enraged Roland slipped free of his restraints and tore a bedspring from the mattress, using the sharp metal wire to slash the priest's arm. (laughs) Hughes quickly referred the family to William S. Bowden, an associate of College Church in St. Louis. Another person who's like, fuck this shit up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bowden and another priest also chose to observe Roland before deciding if an exorcism was proper or not. You know, after the first one had been attempted already. They were like, just to double check, kid just might be crazy. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> and while under observation, Roland's bed began to violently shake as objects moved on their own. Roland began to speak in guttural voice and displayed an extreme aversion to religious objects. Then the priests were like, maybe take the findings to the archbishop? Because, yeah, that's too creepy to not be demons. Yeah. The archbishop took one look and was like, yeah, do it. Fix this kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this bitch got demons. Yep. (laughs) You got ghosts in your blood. Do some cocaine about it. (laughs) That's all it reminded me of was that freaking meme. Oh my gosh. Roland's exorcism went on for weeks, and during one session, with three witnesses present, 
wounds appeared all over the boy's body. Some of the cuts and lacerations were said to resemble words or even demonic faces, but would quickly heal. Ugh. Yeah, Roland also became supernaturally strong, and at one point he violently attacked one of the priests, breaking his nose. He also spoke perfect Latin, despite not knowing it, and some of these events were witnessed by up to 48 people at a time. Mm. In the end, Roland survived the exorcisms, which appeared to have been a major success. He grew up to be a perfectly healthy and successful man, and has no recollection of the events that transpired. I mean, that's good. At least he doesn't remember that trauma, or has buried it so deeply. <laughs> yeah, and there's been, like, reports that come through. Like, I, I couldn't confirm whether they were true or not of, like, what his real name could be. I mean, of course they're gonna hide that. Yeah, which, completely understandable. It's just, like, it makes me curious, because it's, like, if it's been so hidden, like, one of the priests kept a diary throughout the entire rituals and everything, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until after he was dead that these diaries got discovered, and people are saying that it's, like, this shit is still fake, and none of this actually happened, but it's, like, if it was in his personal diaries, not meant to be released to the public. Right. Why would he have like, any reason to lie in his own personal diary? Yeah. Unless he was, like, creating a fucking story for himself. But if this is something that he does, he exercises people who are fucking living, and he's recording it, like, yeah. why would you no fake that shit? No reason to lie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I've never actually seen The Exorcist. You should watch it. It's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not as scary as it probably was in 1973, but it's still fucking freaky. <laughs> I actually watched it the other day just because I was like, fuck it, why not? <laughs> I'll add that to my list. Yeah. As we come toward the end of this episode, we are going to talk about the case that caught me hook, line, and sinker to do days of research on all the subjects we covered today. As mentioned before, we have talked about spiritual possession from the standpoint of myths, documented cases, but have yet to hear about a case that shook a Yale psychologist with a 25-plus year career under his belt to the core and has since been introduced, uh, sorry, not introduced, indoctrinated into the International Association of Exorcists as a permanent consultant to witness cases of possession through a psychiatric standpoint. Dr. Richard Gallagher grew up in an Irish Catholic family in New York City. He had faith like the rest of his relatives, but never put much stock into the idea of demons and possessions. Like, those things never sounded realistic to him. Mm -hmm. As a student at Princeton, he hyper-focused on skyrocketing his career in psychology because he wanted to unlock all the secrets to the human brain. How it works, how people think, mental illnesses, and how to tackle them, etc. After graduating Princeton, he went to Yale to study his doctorate. One year, he traveled to Europe with his brother because they were on the basketball team and they took a trip overseas for a little while. While there, his brother went to visit a neighbor woman that was regarded as the local good witch. Richard's brother had all his life suffered from warts on his hand and no matter what remedies he used, he was never able to get rid of them. So he thought, why the hell not? Let's give magic a try. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a... Yeah. A rational road there. Yeah. This woman gave her, a, gave his brother a poultice and a ritual to follow, and he was supposed to be cured. The problem was, is that it didn't work the first time, and so his brother got discouraged and thought that at first it was a waste of time, as did Richard. Then his brother really thought it through and came to the conclusion that it didn't work because he didn't have enough belief in the ritual to make it work, which, again, with magic, anything spells prayers, anything you do in 
witchcrafts, Wiccan, just magic works itself. It's intent is everything. Mm-hmm. Intent, you, belief, and focus. Yeah, if you don't have those, shit's just not gonna happen. So, that being said, he went back to the woman and asked for help again. She obliged him a second time, and when he performed the ritual again, much to his and Richard's surprise, his hand had been cleared of the warts, and according to Richard, to this day, have never returned. Wow. Yeah. This got Richard more curious. He was still skeptical of any type of mystical forces in the world, but it made him want to dive down this rabbit hole of research on how the ritual worked. Was it all in his brother's mind, like a placebo effect, or had his body just shed itself of this problem all of a sudden? And if so, did his brain have anything to do with it? Like, he was more fascinated with just, like, if it was nerve reactions or sensory anything like that that like he could have tricked himself into thinking it worked it worked why did it work yeah uh when he got back to the states one of his professors noticed his research and introduced him to a book all about spirituality and possessions specifically focusing on the mass possession of the nunnery back in the 1600s (laughs) yeah the book fascinated richard but he was too focused on his studies for his doctorate to get into it after he graduated from Yale, in his first year of residency as an official psychologist, he had put all thought of spirituality and mysticism behind him until he got a knock on his door one day. A priest had come to him in search of a psychological consultant for an exorcism he was going to perform. Richard expressed that he didn't believe in any of that stuff, and the priest just laughed and said that if he wasn't a skeptic, he wouldn't be the right man for the job, so Richard tacked along. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, you're right. Yeah, he was introduced to a woman named Maria who would come to the priest saying she was possessed and needed help. According to Maria's husband, she would be tormented in the middle of the night and something was taking control of her and just beating the crap out of her because wounds and bruises would just appear on her body. Yeah, at first, Richard thought that this was a typical case of spousal abuse and did a psychiatric evaluation on Maria but couldn't find anything wrong with her. Ultimately, this case didn't convince him that demons existed, but he continued to follow several different priests over the next few years, witnessing more and more cases of people uh, that were thought to be possessed. He believes in science, but he feels he has had more opportunity than any other doctor so far in the world to witness cases of legitimate demonic possession. And that first legitimate case started with Julia. In the late 1980s, Dr. Richard Gallagher was introduced to a self-styled satanic high priestess. She called herself a witch, and he felt that she dressed the part. She had flowing black clothes and black eyeshadow around to her temples. In their many discussions, she acknowledged worshipping Satan as his queen. Yeah. She was, like, deep into it. She sounds intense. (laughs) The background that he had had from his college experience is why the priest specifically asked for him to consult on the Julia case. He offered his professional opinion pro bono on whether or not he thought that this woman was suffering from a mental disorder. This case came in at the height of the satanic panic. So he, at first, was, of course, inclined to skepticism, but he felt that her behavior exceeded what he could explain with his training. Objects would fly off the walls around her. Julia could tell some people their secret weaknesses, such as undue pride. She knew how individuals she'd never known had died, including Richard's mother, and how she died of ovarian cancer. This woman was basically 90 pounds soaking wet, and she threw a Lutheran deacon who was about 200 pounds across the room. Holy shit. Just like, bye. Yeah. 
Six people vouched later to Dr. Gallagher that during her exorcisms, they heard her speaking multiple languages, including Latin, completely unfamiliar to her outside of her trances. This was not psychosis. Richard concluded that she was possessed. (laughs) Yeah, he was like, "Mm, bitch possessed. Mm." Originally, this woman had approached her local priest, convinced she was being attacked by a demon. The priest referred her to an exorcist who reached out to Richard for a mental health eval. The night before he met Julia for the first time at about three in the morning, him and his wife were asleep. The two cats that they owned that were usually docile and super lovey went absolute ape shit and were pretty much trying to kill each other. Uh, The couple ended up having to put them in separate rooms, and the next morning when Richard met Julia, she smiled at him, and the first words out of her mouth were, how'd you like the cats last night? Like, no fucking thank you, ma'am. No. No, no thank you. (laughs) Julia would find ways to reach Richard, even if they weren't together in a session. He says that he was talking on the phone one night with Julia's priest, and both men heard one of the demonic voices that Julia would talk in during her trances, saying things like, leave her alone, she's ours. And Julia was not only nowhere near a phone, but she was a thousand miles away from them at the time. Wow. Like... And, of course, this freaked him the hell out. Yeah, yeah. Like, other things, other powers that she actually apparently displayed was, like, um, power of sight. So she would be able to tell Richard during her sessions, like, what the priest was wearing, what he was doing at the time (sighs) of the session, like, just to prove it. And then he would get him on the phone, and he'd be like, what are you wearing? (laughs) (laughs) Jake, that's State Farm. (laughs) Well, what are you wearing, Jake? (laughs) He sounds hideous. <laughs> In no way sponsored by State Farm. <laughs> After Julia, Richard has since then been convinced that although extremely rare, legitimate demonic possession exists and continues to consult with exorcists all over the world. He also says that there is a growing belief among health professionals that a patient's spiritual dimension should be accounted for in treatment, whether their provider agrees with those beliefs or not. Which would That's make nice. sense. It's, yeah. it's, again, going into the placebo effect of, it's like, if you really believe these things are happening to you, and someone acknowledges it to you, and, like, goes through with this whole process, and then all of a sudden you're healed, it's like, how, how just leave it at that. Yeah. Let them be happy. Belief affects our reality in one way or another. It's one of the most powerful forces that humans have. It's belief. Yeah. And it's insane in how many different cases that you see, and still how, like, hard it is for people to acknowledge that this is a thing. Yeah. No, and the, this is what I'm getting into. is like some psychiatrists have even talked of adding a trance and possession disorder diagnosis to the DSM, which is the premier diagnostic manual of disorders used by mental health professionals I in the U.S. I would love to see that show up in the DSM. Yeah. Uh, so another doctor, Dr. Uh, Albanese, that has dealt with weird cases and potential potential possession says quote there is still so much of the human mind that psychiatrists don't know doctors used to be widely skeptical of people who claim to suffer from multiple personalities but now it's a legitimate disorder known as did which that is another huge argument with cases today that the victim could potentially be suffering from did and not demons i mean i can see that for some cases but like 
Not yeah. when they're spouting out shit in different languages they don't yeah. know or speaking in two voices yeah. at once. Like No, but that, that again, that's why they have these guidelines yeah. in, the, in the book. Because it's just like, shit like that can happen where it's like you go from, you know, one personality to another, but it's like if you're not displaying any of these other signs, like fucking shit flying around the room and stuff, it's like, of course there might be a strong possibility that you just have DID. Yeah. Or you're faking it. You know, like Sybil. Because why not? (laughs) Um, Albanese goes on to say, Many are still dumbfounded by the power of placebos, a harmless pill or medical procedure that produces healing in some cases. There's a certain openness to experiences that are happening that are beyond what we can explain by MRI scans, neurobiology, or even psychological theories, end quote. Which again, it's he's acknowledging that these things happen, that these things exist, exist. If not for the sole purpose that the patient believes these things are happening yeah, to them. Yeah, there are so many placebo uh, experiments that they've done. It's yeah. insane to see how much power the mind has over the body itself. Yeah, and if you are a doctor and you're trying so bad to help these patients that have these mental disorders, you have to take into account every single thing they're suffering from or every delusion they may or may not have. Yeah. Because it helps so much. So, according to the Catholic Church, there are six different types of possession. The first being actual possession, wherein Satan or demons take full possession of a person's body without their consent. Um, The second is obsession, sudden attacks of irrational obsessive thoughts, which, mm, that's the case, we're fucked. (laughs) Um, Third, oppression. This is when the demon beats you down, causes you to sink lower and lower, uh, not so much any loss of consciousness or involuntary actions, but like more depression kind of kicking you when you're down. Yeah. yeah. The fourth is external pain caused by demons. So marks or wounds appearing on your body, physical ailments, blackouts, things of that nature. Five, infestation. This is where the haunted houses or vicious animal attacks from family pets stems from with evil entities. Mm-hmm. And last, uh, at six, is subjugation, in which someone makes a pact with Satan or his demons to give you power, thus you volunteering to be possessed. So there have been thousands of cases that involve things like this from all over the world. It makes you question which of these cases that you've heard are fact or fake, like harmless spirit or malevolent demon, or is it something that's just all in your head? Yeah. So it's this is why these things are so trippy to me. So going back to Dr. Richard Gallagher, he believes that after cases like Julia, he has witnessed a real thing. He has personally encountered these rationally inexplainable features along with other paranormal phenomena. He ends his experiences by saying, quote, most of the people I evaluate in this role suffer from the more uh, prosaic problems of a medical disorder. Anyone even faintly familiar with mental illnesses knows that individuals who think they are being attacked by malign spirits are generally experiencing nothing of the sort. Practitioners see psychotic patients all the time who claim to see or hear demons histrionic or highly suggestible individuals such as those suffering from disassociative identity syndromes and patients with personal personality disorders who are prone to misinterpret destructive feelings in what exorcists sometimes call pseudo possession via the defense mechanism of an externalizing projection but what am i supposed to make of patients who unexpectedly start speaking perfect latin yeah 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 that's <laughs> 
that's the whole point of this is like you could have a mental disorder or doctors can say that you have psychosis all you want but if you start fucking speaking in tongues or have hidden knowledge or shit starts flying around the room yeah or throw a 200 pound man across the room like he's a piece of fucking paper like come on now my thing is people can be psychotic and Mm -hmm. also possessed yeah i'm sure that there are cases of that out there Mm -hmm. because who's more vulnerable than the mentally fucked up yeah kind of open to all that shit yeah their like guard is not up as it should be because they can't Mm -hmm. (laughs) so who's to say they're not also possessed yeah true but again this therein lies that's just like a whole group of people that they're leaving out of their let's save humanity the unexplained question of whether this shit is real or not yeah Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for more scary tales to make you sleep with the lights on. Don't forget to follow us on Anchor and click the links in the show notes to hook up with our Facebook group and grab that merch to show some love for your girls. Later. Later.